This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And we've also done this on Twitter. We, we've shown that you can use this. If you pick people at random, let's say you pick 50,000 people at random from Twitter and you see who they follow, and then you pick a set of 50,000 people they are following, and then you look at hashtags that arise and spread on Twitter, the friends of the random people will express that hashtag about nine days earlier than the random people themselves. Hmm. So you can pick, you can use that set of 50,000 friends of the random people as a canary in a coal mine to know what will be popular in the future. Yeah, we've been trying to connect for uh, a few months. Um, I I think I heard about you through a TED Talk that you did in 2010, I want to say, where you were talking about a potential epidemic, uh, obviously very timely these days. You've got a new book out called Apollo's Arrow, uh, which talks all about the COVID epidemic and how that's going to impact our cultures. What have you seen so far since you've written that book that's kind of really come true that you may have predicted that, because I know sometimes it takes like two years to write the book, another year to publish it. Uh, so I imagine a lot of the predictions that you may have had or, or, or some of the findings that you may have had weren't always in fruition until a couple of years later down the road. So have you found anything since you've written the book? Well, um, the backstory for this particular book is I had just completed in 2019 a, a book that took me 10 years. So primarily I'm a research scientist. I run a lab at Yale University. And, but in my spare time, I write, try to write books of you know, popular science for, to help advance the public understanding of science. And I had just written a book that came out in 2019 called Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. And I wasn't planning on writing another book, but, um, you know, of course, the pandemic began in China in 2019 and spread around the world in early 2020. And it, in the early part of 2020, in, in February, actually, what happened is in January, I had a longstanding collaboration with some Chinese scientists, and we had been using phone data from China to study social networks. You can use uh, phone data to trace out people's social interactions. And we've been looking at things like how building a high-speed rail line might affect how people interact with each other, or how an earthquake, for example, might, um, might um, in the immediate aftermath of an earthquake, you know, who did people call, for example. Mm. So, so when the pandemic struck, my, my uh, colleagues uh, said, you know, we could use these data to study the early spread of the uh, epidemic. And so therefore, beginning in the middle of January of 2020, I was beginning to focus on the, on the epidemic. So very early on. And I became, of course, aware that on January 24th, the Chinese government basically locked down 930 million people, said that you had to stay at home. And this really got my attention. In other words, in the judgment of the Chinese, this epidemic was, this virus was sufficiently serious that they essentially detonated a social nuclear weapon to stop it. You know, they put yeah. a billion people. And meanwhile, in the United States, the narrative was very sort of whistling by the graveyard, you know, very la la la, nothing is happening. Remember, President Trump was saying it'll go away, it'll go away. For months, he said it'll go away. As the cases went from five to 50 to 500 to 50,000, it'll go away. Yeah, I remember so, the headline being actually more about how fast the Chinese built hospitals in such a short amount of time. Yes, it wasn't even about the virus. It was just the headline of like how yes. efficient the Chinese were. Yes, they built a 1,000-bed hospital on the outskirts of Wuhan in 10 days. Uh, and, uh, and there are videos of that happening and so on. And, and uh, you're absolutely right. But what we should have been saying, why are they doing that? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, this something is up. You know, we should take this seriously. And there was no reason to suppose, I mean, to any sophisticated observer, uh, you know, with any knowledge or experience of epidemic disease, there was no reason to suppose that this would stay in China. Uh, such viruses don't do that, especially, well, ever, but it, especially in the modern age with such rapid transport links between 
you know, major cities around the globe. So, so by January 24th, I was very alarmed. And, um, and the narrative in our country, certainly through February, um, you know, was very lackadaisical. And, and then Italy collapsed. Let's not forget, in February of 2020, Lombardy had this extraordinary collapse. And so it became really impossible to imagine this was just an Asiatic problem. You know, so it's going to stay in Asia for some reason. You know, now Italy has collapsed, you know, a sort of a European democracy. Why on earth we would think that we also would be affected by, by February? Really strange credulity. And of course, by March, even still in early March, American, many Americans, certainly the president, uh, but also many governors, including both Democratic and Republican governors, were very relaxed about this. And by March 20th, of course, New York City collapses. And then we start to take this thing a bit more seriously. But prior to that, I had become very concerned that people weren't taking it seriously. And I had at that time a sort of modest Twitter following. And I decided to sort of start sending out some basic Twitter threads, you know, Epi 101, like what is known about respiratory pandemics? You know, what's going to happen? And um, and to my surprise, as quite a few of those threads sort of went viral, you know, and got tens of millions of views. And so it, it sort of reinforced for me the need, the, the, the hunger in, on, uh, that many Americans had for knowledge about this once in a century event that at least increasingly some people were realizing was going to strike us. And so around uh, March 15th, I uh, spoke to my a long-term editor at Little Brown, who had, they had published my previous books, a woman by the name of Tracy Bihar, about, um, about possibly writing an, a book about the pandemic. And, uh, and we decided it should come out quickly. So between March the 15th and July 15th, when the book was due, 2020, I worked nonstop, 120 days, 12 hours a day, to get the book written. It went to the publisher July the 15th. It had to be edited and manufactured, and it came out in October of 2020. And the book outlined what was known about coronaviruses, what uh, what was likely to happen in terms of respiratory pandemic, and made a series of predictions about what was likely to happen, and most so, of which most of which have come true. What were the data points? Um, so a lot of the data and the findings that you had were mainly because of kind of the phone data that you had from your studies in China. Is that, is that kind no, of no, the... That, that okay. was not the only thing. We did, we published that paper using the phone data uh, in April of 2020 in the journal Nature. And that paper just looked at the very early days of spread within China. The book was yeah. based on a, on a longer, on a larger body of work done by many scientists and his historians of medicine. The book looks at the, the history of uh, epidemics across thousands of years, you know, and, uh, and looks at the history of respiratory pandemics specifically over a couple of hundred years, and uh, looks at the epidemiology of respiratory pathogens, the what is known about the social and economic impact of plagues, and there's a lot known about this. And among other things, I sort of sketched out, this was now in July of 2020, what was likely to happen, which is that there would be three phases of the epidemic. The first phase, which would last until 2022, was going to be the immediate phase, which we felt the biological and epidemiological impact of the virus. You know, the virus was having a field day with us. It was like, like rats released on an isolated Pacific island that overrun the place. Our bodies were that island to the virus, which was the rats. You know, the, the, we had no natural immunity and the virus is just going to spread and spread in us until mm -hmm. it, you know, saturated the population, either because it infected all of us or because we invented a vaccine which gave us immunity, which we ultimately did, which was also amazing. But anyway, so I said the first phase would last until 2022. Uh, and then then we would enter the second phase, which we are, as it turns out today, as of Ju July 29th, 2022, we are now about to enter soon the second phase or we're entering these are not hard and fast the second phase the intermediate phase would last until 2024 and then finally in 2024 we would enter the post-pandemic phase and the primary challenges during the intermediate phase which we are now roughly in are little are, are to clean up the mess you know the social and economic and psychological and clinical aftershocks of the virus and um and it's like a tsunami, you know, the virus is like a tsunami that's washed ashore, 
Finally, the water recedes, which is great, uh, but you know there's a huge disaster left by the tsunami. There are broken buildings and and big boats that are miles inland, and you know the roads are ruined, and so we need to clean up the mess. And that's sort of the phase we're in now uh, with the virus. And um, we can talk about that if you want. All the aftershocks, mm-hmm. with a little wrinkle that because we haven't yet fully adopted vaccination, we're still having more clinical problems with the virus, and and there have been more variants than than I might have expected. Uh, But we're going to be in this intermediate phase for a couple of years. And then finally, roughly in 2024, we will put the whole pandemic behind us. And I think that is going to be a little bit of a party. I think that's going to be like the roaring 20s of the 21st century, Mm -hmm. just like the roaring 20s of the 20th century followed the 1918 uh, Spanish influenza pandemic. How how did you know with how unique this virus was? in terms of the spread and everything uh, that we really haven't had in our generation. How how did you find these accurate predictions without really a lot of context? Obviously, there have been previous epidemics like this, um, but it's just been so long ago, but in a different time as well, where maybe people weren't traveling as much, we just didn't have the same technology and uh, were you just using those those historical? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, I mean, people have asked me this question before and I can't claim to have any special um, a genius about this. Uh, my answer is that I went to school, <laughs> you know, like like I like I I was taught about you know respiratory <laughs> pandemics. You know, people have been writing about Tony Fauci was publishing papers about respiratory pandemics when I was in high school, and you hadn't been born. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, it's you know, this is there's a lot of literature about these types of things. And, and of course, the pathogens can vary. You know, coronavirus is different than influenza. But even with coronavirus, we had, we have, uh, there were seven prior coronaviruses which infected humans. Four caused the common cold. I'm sorry, six prior ones, four caused the common cold. And then we had MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which isn't as transmissible, but is much more deadly, kills about right. 30% of the people that it infects. And SARS-1 in 2003, which became pandemic, but didn't kill anywhere near as many people, about, I forgot how many right now, I think 800 people died out of 8,000 cases worldwide in, I don't know, 30 countries or something. It's all in the book. But, and that killed about 10% of the people it infected. But this particular pathogen, because of information that was released initially by Chinese scientists in January of 2020, and then by Italian scientists in February of 2020, was possible to know certain specific parameters about this virus, certain intrinsic properties of the virus, which you could then take and benchmark against other respiratory pathogens and make, as it turns out, a pretty reliable prediction about what was going to happen. So mm-hmm. uh, in my community, you know, in, in February, certainly by March of 2020, everyone was very alarmed. <laughs> I mean, people who knew how to look at respiratory pandemics knew what was going to happen. And it was just the lack of uh, leadership at political levels. And, you know, I don't think the average American can rightly be expected to know details about respiratory pandemics, but they can rightly be expected to listen to experts and, you know, try to digest the information, especially if that information is shared in a digestible way. So, you know, it's like any other threat, you know, for example, with the invasion in Ukraine, I don't know anything about tank warfare. I don't know if you know about tank warfare, but I saw that line of tanks outside Kyiv and I'm like, really, is that what they do with tanks? And then I saw all the tanks being destroyed by these anti-tank weapons. And I thought, gee, I thought tanks are supposed to be impervious. You know, they're tanks, you know, like why are they being so easily destroyed? And, you know, so I had to call friends of mine who have expertise in tank warfare. You know, like, <laughs> tank experts. I, you know, you know, I don't you know tank experts about- as you're on your, on your contact list? I do. I actually have two people. One was a former student of mine uh, who uh, was uh, a captain in the war in Iraq and got a PhD in economics. He's an economist by the name of John Horton. And uh, I called him up. I'm John. I was like, can you tell me? He, he, he was a tank commander, as it turned out. And, uh, and, I, and he explained to me something very interesting, which in, in those movies, you always see infantry around tanks. Any of your listeners who know about warfare, this will be obvious to they'll know this, but I didn't know this. I always wondered why are there soldiers in the tank and soldiers outside the tank? Isn't the point to be inside the tank? That's what I was thinking. 
Yeah, well, it turns out in all those Second World War movies, the guys are you know marching behind the tanks. Turns out that in the tank is safe from from our, uh, from um, munitions, but you have very limited visibility in the tank, and you need combined arms. You need infantry outside the tank to see the guys that are trying to kill the tank, and mm-hmm. so and then they can uh, engage the enemy, and then the tank can turn its cannon and also engage. So you need people in and out of the tank. It turns out. And the Russians didn't have this. They just had guys in tanks. They didn't have guys outside the tanks, which is one of the reasons they were so vulnerable. Anyway, so John gave me a long lecture on this, you know, which was very educational. And then I had uh, Stan McChrystal. I I, uh, happened to be connected to him. And so I called him up and I was like, Stan, you know, what can you tell me about what's happening? You know, so. So anyway, so the point is that there's all kinds of expertise in our society about everything. And people can only know certain things. And that's why, in, in a way, we have a knowledge economy and we trade money for knowledge. We trade money for goods and services. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, you know, it was uh, we have this expertise in our advanced uh, democracy and we should have take, availed ourselves of it. We, we did, just I'll say one more thing, you know, our ability to make these extraordinary vaccines, which were truly unexpectedly good, the mRNA vaccines, reflects hundreds, 200 years of innovation in, in vaccination and the contributions of tens of thousands of human beings, you know, doctors and vaccinologists and biochemists and molecular biologists and epidemiologists, like, you know, tens of thousands of people worked for decades to get us to the point where we could invent these vaccines within a year and save yeah. our lives. Uh, and you know, that expertise also existed in our society. And thankfully, we, we availed ourselves of it. Hmm. So um, before we move on, because uh, uh, well, I guess well, I'll ask you this, which is what's what do you what do you see as like, the second and third phase of what's going to be happening as we reach herd immunity and, you know, hopefully look COVID behind us and our shoulders? Well, right now we're in that second phase, that intermediate phase I mentioned, we're still fighting a bit of a rearguard action against the virus, partly because uh, we're not adequately boosted. Only 20% or 25% of Americans older than 50 have had two boosters. Any listeners older than 50 should surely get uh, a second booster. And uh, there'll be new ones, new Omicron specific boosters that are available in, in September, which people should get. It's just a wise course of action. Do you know how much percent of people are actually vaccinated though with the two with two or, or one shot for for the Johnson? I don't know. I don't have that number at my fingertips. There's still a significant fraction of Americans who've received no vaccines, but um, but we we as a nation have not adequately provided boosters, and as a result of that, the virus is still going to spread among us and kill us. Uh, right now, we have about 400 deaths a day. Here we are in July of 2022. 400 Americans are dying every day on average, of the virus. And that is at least three times and maybe as much as eight times worse on an annualized basis than the flu. About twenty to 50,000 Americans die every year of the flu. And it's one of the leading killers in our society. And now we have this extra killer, coronavirus, which didn't exist before. So in addition to all the other threats to life, we have another new threat, which is killing, which is at least three times as bad as the flu. So it's really... It's serious. I mean, it's the vi- the epidemic is not over. The virus is still killing us. It's mostly killing unvaccinated people and mostly yeah. killing the elderly, uh, but is, not exclusively those groups. Is it me either, or like are people just not talking about it? I feel like the press is isn't really well. Maybe they are. I'm just not hearing about it as much. Like it, it feels to me for most yes. people, at least in my social circle, we've just kind of moved on. And yes. whether it's just media fatigue or people just tired of hearing about it, maybe the media just isn't reporting it as much. But if, it, it just seems like, in, at least in the media, people aren't really yes. going about it. Well, it's a little similar to other things that happen in our society, like, like uh, you know, gun violence. We just sort of have accepted that, that armed men with submachine guns will go into schools and kill children. You know, and it just sort of happens every so often and we just sort of move on. Or the opioid epidemic, which has killed many more people than than COVID. You know, we sort of we talk about it, but it's sort of in the background and people don't care or um, or um, or even some of the political developments. I mean, the insurrection on January the 6th, a large fraction of the American electorate doesn't seem to care, which is astonishing about this very anti-democratic set of things that happened in our society. 
hmm. um, abetted by at the highest levels of our government. So there is some fatigue and there's history for this. I mean, one of the things I talk about in Apollo Zero is that epidemics have both a biological and a sociological end. In other words, they don't just end. For example, a typical biological end, as you mentioned earlier, was you reach herd immunity. So herd immunity is the idea that a population can be immune from a, a, a pathogen, even if not every constituent individual is immune. For example, if you vaccinate 96% of the population for measles, even if one of the 4% of the unvaccinated people gets a case of measles, you don't get an outbreak because there's no one to spread it to. So 96% is herd immunity. It's adequate to prevent epidemics of measles from starting. Uh, so that's herd immunity. And, and that's one typical biological end of all, in other words, in, as, the path, as a new pathogen spreads in the human population, eventually enough people have gotten it, many have died, but among the survivors, uh, they now have natural immunity and enough of them are naturally immune that the epidemic, the pathogen kind of runs out of places to go. And then, then the epidemic kind of declines. That's the typical end of an epidemic. And there are other ends too. Another biological end is that um, the pathogens, it's theorized and often this does happen, they mutate to become less severe, less deadly. Because in a Darwinian sense, the pathogen quote, has no interest in killing us. Uh, it, it's not good for the pathogen necessarily to kill us. That's not what it wants, quote unquote, to do. It, what it, re it really wants to do is, is spread. And so variants of, variants of the virus that incapacitate us or kill us tend to die out, whereas variants of the virus that make us the, you know, sick but still ambulatory and still spreading it tend to spread. So over time, those variants that are milder tend to come to predominate and that's um, a little bit of what's happening in coronavirus right now, by the way. So mm -hmm. that, those are the biological ends. But the social ends have to do with when people, as you said, just get fed up. At some point, people just sort of declare victory or put their head in the sand and decide to move on. And this is typical of plagues and has been seen for thousands of years, this sociological end uh, of, uh, of a plague. And we're, and we're seeing some of that as well. But you asked me about the intermediate phase so the virus is not quite endemic yet. We really haven't quite left, you know, we haven't really reached a certain kind of herd immunity in our population yet. Could you and just many, define endemic? Endemic is, is when you have a sort of a steady background rate and not a supranormal rate. When the, when the pathogen settles into kind of coexisting with, the, with its host. And um, epidemic is when you have an increase uh, of the condition above the background rate. And we still have an increase in coronavirus above the quote background rate. And this coming winter, by the way, it's going to go up. It's right. It's 400 a day now. Two winters ago, we peaked at around um, 3,200 deaths a day averaged on a weekly basis. And last winter, we peaked at around 2,800 deaths a day. These are large numbers, by the way, daily Americans dying. And, yeah. um, you know, that's like a 9-11 number of deaths every single day. Uh, and... And we're, I don't think we're going to be that bad this coming winter, but we're certainly going to go north of the 400 per day we are now. Uh, so the virus is still not totally settled down, which incidentally is also typical of respiratory pathogens. Uh, rest, novel respiratory pandemics, they typically take four or five winters before they settle down to the kind of a baseline low rate. Enough people have been exposed and are now immune that the virus runs out of places to go and it's just infecting. It's like we have a few cases of measles every year in our country, but really not that many because everyone's immune. Uh, so, right. you know, it's just endemic. Measles is endemic. It's just in the background. So we still have, we haven't quite settled down there, but in addition, we are now in this intermediate phase we're in having to do this mop-up operation I mentioned, which includes a lot of things. For example, suicides are up in young people. Uh, and this is this is a well understood the, the kind of mental health consequences of plagues have been described for thousands of years. Marcus Aurelius, for example, in a plague in, in Rome 2000 years ago, talks about how the kind of malaise had settled over the city, how people were afraid and depressed. This is very typical. Um, yeah. Is to, that because people are forced to stay inside more, not socialize with others to, to avoid the contamination? Yes, and also afraid of death and, and grieving. Many people have uh, relatives or friends who have died. I mean, it's multifactorial. Mm -hmm. um, 
we have the problem of young children uh, with learning loss, you know, the school closures and all the other disruptions, the mask wearing that interfered with uh, normal learning gains in very young kids, you know, three, four, five, six year olds. Uh, seeing the face of the person you're speaking to is very important for learning to speak. Yeah. Um, uh, there have been a number of studies of the learning loss that has taken place, and it's extremely substantial. Uh, it's gonna, and this same thing happened, by the way, in 1918. It's going to take a long time, if ever, to recover from the setbacks these young people had to their uh, academic advancement in terms of reading and writing and arithmetic, uh, plus their socialization. A lot of teachers are reporting as kids return to school, really um, delayed social maturation in elementary school students, you know, where 10 year olds are acting like six year olds and six year olds are acting like three year olds. Uh, you know, you have first graders that are uh, in diapers uh, or wetting their pants at school, for example, and you have 10th graders that can't regulate them. I'm sorry, 10 year olds that can't regulate themselves. You know, they're acting like they're first graders. So there's there's all of that which has to be dealt with. So we've got the mental health consequences, we've got the learning loss, we've got the the economic impact. We we borrowed trillions of dollars from the future to uh, to uh, to kind of uh, uh, reduce the shock of the epidemic right now, but we're going to have to repay that debt, and and, it, and it's inflationary. And in fact, yeah. we're seeing inflation. We're seeing that now, right? Yeah. yeah, we're seeing supply chain disruptions are still happening. You know, we have. We have a kind of onshoring of a lot of critical infrastructure. The, the, the Chinese policy, the, the continued zero COVID policy in China, which makes little sense any longer in my view, is continuing to cause supply chain disruptions uh, and let alone the unexpected war in Ukraine and everything else. So yeah, we have- what, what do you think is behind that China now? Because it is an odd move that everybody is questioning, like why? Why do that when you have the vaccine and all that stuff? Well, do you there's think there's couple, some other purpose to it? Well, yes, I think that I think the Chinese government is quite interested in controlling its populace. But um, the main problem. So what the Chinese did initially was miraculous. Uh, they, they took advantage of their own particular, you know, they have an authoritarian government and a communitarian culture and uh, people quite obediently stayed at home and the government quite happily ordered them to stay at home. And um they stopped the virus cold. I mean, that was, I mean, leaving aside my concern about the political aspects of that from a public health point of view was very impressive. Right. But what they should have done is when they bought time with that is to develop and distribute effective vaccines. They were late in develop in distributing vaccines. They developed some vaccines early on. They were late in distributing them and in, in getting everyone in their population vaccinated. And their vaccines were not very effective to begin with and lost effectiveness as soon as the Omicron variant came out. So their vaccines against the original, the native Wuhan strain, the Alpha and the Delta strains were, I don't know, 65%, the Sinopharm and the Sinovac vaccine compared to the 95% for our mRNA vaccines. But for political reasons, the Chinese didn't want to have Western vaccines, which was you know foolish as, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. So they didn't use the Western vaccines in their country. And then Omicron came and further reduced the efficacy. So they don't have effective vaccines. So now they've, they have vaccinated most of their population now, I'm pretty sure, but it doesn't really work. Plus they made a political commitment to the zero COVID thing. It became kind of Xi Jinping's, one of his you know, main arguments. Yeah. And, uh, and so you know, they're really kind of in a tough spot politically. Well, they could, uh, develop and or develop their own or use Western vaccines that are effective and vaccinate a lot of their population, loosen up their zero COVID policy, take some hits. They're going to get some deaths. They're a country of over a billion people and the vaccine protects, but doesn't fully stop death. Um, so they'd have a lot of death, uh, but not on a proportionate amount, not too much death. Uh, but then they could sort of have a more normal life. But that's not the path they're taking. And it's very unclear to me, there's really no exit strategy from this path. I mean, there's no way they can forever keep COVID out of their country. Mm -hmm. and, and there's and I can't imagine maybe this is their plan for 10 years. They're going to have zero COVID policy. I mean, they're really going to be shutting <laughs> down cities for 10 years. I mean, what is their what is their strategy? That's crazy. The, yeah. The only reason to have lockdowns is to buy time to develop um, no, there are two. There are a lot of reasons. I should be very clear. One reason is to decompress uh, 
the uh, demands on your healthcare system. In other words, if you're going to have 10,000 sick people, you'd rather have 1,000 sick per week over 10 weeks than all 10,000 sick the first week. Mm-hmm. Because if you get all 10,000 sick the first week, you inundate your hospitals and more people die than would have died if you had spaced out those illnesses. So one reason to have lockdowns and, and the kinds of non-pharmaceutical interventions we had at the beginning is to decompress our healthcare system to allow it to work better and save lives. And a second reason is to buy us time to develop effective therapeutics. And then once you do, like in a vaccine, then you can liberalize your policy. This is why we're so foolish in the United States. We have these miraculous vaccines. Everyone should get them. And then we'll be able to resume normal life with very low risk of death, which we're not doing. And by the way, we also have other things we can do and should do, like develop nasal vaccines for technical reasons we can discuss and uh, invest in the so-called pan-coronavirus vaccine, which I don't think it'll be a panacea, but it will be helpful and so on. Um, in, in terms of the vaccines itself, have there been, I, I think like, I think what's effective about China is that you can have the government force most of the citizens to take it. And there's not a lot of things that citizens can do there, but obviously with yes. America being more independent, it's, it's, it's combined that with all these like controversial media outlets about uh, vaccines causing side effects and so forth. I think people are a little bit scared, but have there yeah, but been actual... The vaccines are, these vaccines are extraordinarily safe, like much safer than any vaccines we've developed in the past. So these truly, these mRNA vaccines are truly astonishing. They're astonishingly effective and they're astonishingly safe. And the rate of side effects is very low and lower than the risk of dying uh, from getting a serious pathogen. Now, to be clear, if you've you've already survived, you, you don't, I mean, there's a mix of strategies. I mean, if you, for example, if you, been vaccinated and had a natural infection as well, you probably have extremely good immunity and it may not be necessary for you to get further vaccines. Um, if, you've, if you've only survived the infection and have never been vaccinated, it's probably wise to get a shot because it'll boost your immunity and protect you from reinfection, which could be bad for you. It's always safer to get the vaccine than it is to, um, well, there's some wrinkles in to that as well. But generally speaking, for the great majority of people, it's safer to get the vaccine than to get the natural infection. The, the argument that I've heard, uh, which, which to me makes sense, is for like the people that are maybe uh, are hesitant around it, if you're young, relatively young, or if you're older and you're, you're, or you have certain uh, immune conditions, it totally makes sense versus the potential downsides. But let's say if you're a little bit, uh, you're healthy and you're young, and you have questions around what the side effects could be 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road. Yes. Uh, is there any reassurance yeah. you can provide around yeah. that? I mean, how variants work? Okay. So for, to those people, I would say the following thing, you are right that we, these MRNA vaccines have not existed for a very long time. And um, that, uh, that it's a new technology and there's some remote possibility, although we don't have a lot of biological reason to believe this, that um, 10 years from now, we might discover some unexpected thing. And th- frankly, there's no way to totally reassure you unless we wait 10 years, uh, you know, to like we have, you know, we have 60 or 70 years of measles vaccination history. I mean, tetanus, I mean, we all those other shots, mumps, rubella, you know, we, we have decades of experience with those vaccines, so we can be more certain about long-term effects. So the people who are hesitant because of the novelty of the technology, you can either try to say to them, look, there's no biological reason to have this concern, although I can't guarantee you. However, you could say to those people, then why don't you take one of the Chinese vaccines? Because the Chinese vaccines actually use old technology that mm-hmm. um, actually has been around for like 30 or 40 years and, uh, and are known to be safe. So you get at least get something, you know, go ahead and get one of those other vaccines that use an older technology. And if the person says, well, those aren't as effective, then you're like, correct. You know? <laughs> That's right. You know, so, um, you know, and, 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 and like someone like, you know, I was, I would say sophisticated people like me, I was going to say, but I don't mean it that way. What I mean is even people like me or Tony Fauci or, or Mark Lipschitz at Harvard, someone I know, or, or Trevor Bedford at Seattle, or a lot of these people who, are experts uh, in these types of 
in respiratory pandemics, in, 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 in respiratory pathogens, in vaccines, all of those people have vaccinated themselves and their families. So, you know, people are, people are, you know, putting their money where their mouth is. I mean, these people have judged for themselves that, and they're in the people with the most knowledge uh, that it's safe for them, or it's the best, the wisest choice. Uh, so, you know, I think that should also ideally be compelling. It's not like I'm refusing to get vaccinated and telling you you should get vaccinated with this novel technology. I've done it myself. I've given yeah. it to my children, you know, so that should count for something, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, I just want to move on now uh, because we talk a lot about herd immunity and how in this particular case, diseases spread. I want to talk a little bit about how ideas spread, particularly for entrepreneurs, people that are creatives and kind of using that framework that you've done so much uh, research on around how diseases spread and, and talk to us a little bit about how we can what are some of the insights that you've learned about how diseases spread and how people can apply that framework to get their ideas spread or get their products or businesses to spread? Well, we've actually done a ton of research on that in my lab. I mean, that's one of the main things that we investigate in my laboratory, uh, which if people are interested, we we're actually we're upgrading our website soon, but it's the URL is humannaturelab.net. Mm. And we um, we just published a paper last week in um, in, in uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where we did a randomized controlled trial in India of a new product, an iron fortified salt. We actually did this in partnership with uh, Tata Chemicals. And we were happy to work with them because they want to sell more iron fortified salt to reduce anemia in, in pregnant women and children. Anemia is a serious global public health threat. Uh, perinatal anemia. Uh, and um, so they want to sell more iron fortified salt, but I want to reduce anemia in, in babies. And yeah, uh, so it was a good partnership. And, Tata's uh, the Indian holding company, right? Say that again? Tata's the Indian holding company. Tata where they is have a huge, like... Tata's an enormous conglomerate that's been around for 100 years. They have many subsidiaries. Their, their major subsidiary is Tata Consulting Services, but they have other subsidiaries, Tata Chemical, Tata Steel, Tata Motors. It goes on and on. Anyway, yeah. we work with Tata. There's actually, we have an alliance, Yale and Tata, the conglomerate have an alliance to invest in frontier science. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, but we were working on this particular project with one of the subsidiaries, Tata Chemical. Anyway, we, we worked in, uh, in uh, 50 low-income residential units in Mumbai. We, um, we used some software we've developed in my lab, which is publicly available. It's called Trellis, T-R-E-L-L-I-S. You can learn more about that at trellis.yale.edu. Uh, and we mapped the networks of these 50 residential units. And there were something like 2,500 female heads of household in these units. And we um, then randomly assigned different units to get different network targeting algorithms. So for example, in some units, nobody was, and then we had a, uh, an educational intervention about iron fortified salt. So. The people to whom we spoke were going to get an educational intervention about iron fortified salt, the risks of anemia and what to do about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we were interested in, however, is not whether the people to whom we delivered the intervention responded. Did they learn about anemia? Did they take steps to redress anemia? We were not interested in response to treatment among the treated. We were interested in response to treatment among the untreated. What did everyone else in that residential unit do when I taught one person about anemia? In other words, could we, could we induce artificial tipping points? Could we foster the spread of ideas and knowledge and behavior related to anemia? And so our experiment involved randomly assigning different uh, communities to different network targeting algorithms. They all got the same educational intervention, but what varied across units was how the people were chosen. And we showed mm -hmm. that it's possible to use some mathematical ideas about network science to identify structurally influential individuals, individuals who by virtue of where they're located in the social network in these communities, if they adopt the practice, they can make everyone else adopt the practice. And so in that paper published last week, we showed we were able to do that, that we were able to use certain algorithms, uh, which I, we can talk about if you're interested, to um, to do this, to, identify, to foster the diffusion 
of public health knowledge and practice. And we, we have another huge study in Honduras. We haven't yet published the results of that, sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation where, and, and others. Uh, we've had support also from, um, from the Nomis Foundation in Switzerland and from, um, from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and actually from the federal government. And, and there we have a population of 30,000 people in 176 villages. And we had a two-year maternal and child health intervention. And uh, we um, tried to see whether, again, we could create artificial tipping points through the shrewd and thoughtful selection of who in each village we chose based on their network position to maximize the spread of knowledge and behavior with respect to public health. And I'm not prepared to discuss the results of that trial today, but, um, but let's say we're very optimistic that, we'll, that we've been able to do that again. What's the ratio of the people that you choose to adopt versus the people that um, in that community aren't adopting? So is it like one to 10? So far, yeah, what, so yeah. we found, we've experimented with that fraction. We've used small fractions like five, 10 or 20%. And we've shown that we can do it with those small fractions that, you know, if you if you pick 20% of the people using um, and this, of course, has a big impact for other marketing efforts or other behavior changes within firms, you know, let's say you are a, a firm, you have engineers and you're trying to get engineers to uh, foster the diffusion of innovation or you um, you want to get factory workers to wear their hard hats or you want to reduce absenteeism in companies. These are all a phenomena that spread by social contagion. You know, if your coworker is taking a lot of needless and inappropriate absences, it lowers your threshold for doing that. Or if your coworker is wearing a hard hat, it increased, you know, it lowers your threshold for wearing a hard hat. Or uh, if your coworker is generous with knowledge, then you become more generous with knowledge. These are all within firms. These are all properties that spread via social contagion. And so, so, uh, uh, if, if, if you have interventions that uh, you want to implement that foster public health or other public policy objectives, our technology or our, our discoveries show you a way you can do that with a much greater return on investment. In other words, instead of having to target 100% of the people, you might only need to target 20%, which either reduce your costs by a factor of five or multiplies the number of people you can reach by a factor of five with the same, same investment. Yeah. So the idea there is, um, well, how did you guys choose the people that you choose to adopt? Because I can think about this, how this could apply in digital marketing where, uh, or networking in, as well, where you choose the person that has the most reach instead of yes. trying to reach the person that has five followers, you choose someone that has 100,000 or you choose to network with someone. Yes. It's really not about how many people you know, it's about who you know and that are super connectors, let's say, if you want to be the most networked person, because they have connections to everyone. So you're only one or two connections away, uh, instead of just trying to know everyone. Uh, is that the similar framework there? Like you it's, chose people that had influence in that community? It's complicated. It's not just a question of who has the most number of followers, let's say. And partly this has to do with the fact that you know, if you're if you're following someone with a million followers and they I mean, here's the example. In, if 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 if, um, if 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 someone, you know, online. Who is not your real friend, in other words, who you do not have a real face to face relationship with, makes some kind of a recommendation that's not necessarily going to be any more powerful. In fact, it's probably in fact, we've shown it's much less powerful than if one of your real friends makes a recommendation. So if one of your real friends, Sean, says, buy this book, that's going to have an impact on you. Much larger than if some random person you're following online with a million followers says, buy this book. Now, so the, the first wrinkle in what you said that I want to clarify is that, is that uh, it's, not, it, it's not simply a numbers game. It's, it has to do with whether something is actually at stake and whether these are real relationships. And, and the most important thing is your real relationships, your, your real face-to-face -face relationships with people you care about are the people who in fact have the biggest impact on you across a whole host of factors, whether you get COVID vaccination or buy an iPhone instead of a Samsung. That depends a lot more on whether your friends or your actual friends and your spouse and your siblings and your parents are buying an iPhone instead of a Samsung or getting a COVID vaccine than what's happening in the online world, first point. Second point, 
it's not simply a matter of picking the people with the most connections. Uh, that's one algorithm you could use. The algorithm that we have been exploring for the last few years and have done multiple randomized controlled trials to test is an algorithm that relies on something known as the friendship paradox. The friendship paradox states that your friends have more friends than you do. This is a true statement about social networks. Your friends, on average, in expectation, have more friends than you do. It also is the case that your sexual partners have more sexual partners than you do. If you're a scientist, your co-authors have more co-authors than you do. That really pisses me off. And, uh, <laughs> and it has to do with the mathematics of, of, of social networks. In a, in, a, in a social network, in a so-called graph, if you have something called heterogeneous degree, which means that there's variation in how many people in, in variation in how many people each person is connected to. So instead of everyone having five friends, some people have one friend, some people have two, three, four, five, 10, 20, 30 friends. There's variation in how many connections people have. Popular people will be connected to many people. Therefore, they will be much more likely to be nominated as a friend of someone. Yeah. For example, imagine you have a, a party host that has 100 friends and invites 100 people to a party and, uh, and the, all those people are wallflowers. They only know one person, and, and that's the party host. So you have 101 people in, in the room. And now if you sample those people at random and you say, who's your friend? 100 of them will say the party host who has 100 friends. So for 100 of the people, they're the party host, for 100 people, their friends will have more friends than they do. And only one person in that party will have, their friend will have fewer friends than they do. So that illustrates the friendship paradox, that because popular people have many connections, if you pick people at random, they're going to be more likely to be nominated uh, as the friend and therefore have more connections than the original person you selected. Hmm. And it's this little mathematical trick that we've exploited in India and Honduras and elsewhere, Uganda, to do public health intervention. So we go into a village, we ask random people to tell us who their friends are, and then we deliver the intervention to their friends. We, we give the public health intervention to the friends of the random people. And, uh, and it turns out that that has much bigger impact. So instead of, let's say you pick 10% of the people in a village at random, and instead of giving the intervention to them, you give it to one person, one of their, each of those people's friends. So again, 10% of the village, same intervention, same number of people targeted, four or five times the effect because you've used this, this little trick. By the mm -hmm. way, We've used the same trick going back now 12 years in old work to, instead of deliver information into the network, extract information from the network. And I, I did a TED talk, which maybe you mentioned at the beginning, on using social networks to predict epidemics, which illustrates yeah. the friendship paradox. And we've also done this on Twitter. We, we've shown that you can use this, if you pick people at random, let's say you pick 50,000 people at random from Twitter, and you see who they follow, and then you pick a set of 50,000 people they are following, and then you look at hashtags that arise and spread on Twitter, the friends of the random people will express that hashtag about nine days earlier than the random people themselves. Hmm. So you can pick, you can use that set of 50,000 friends of the random people as a canary in a coal mine to know what will be popular in the future because those people are more likely to be exposed to whatever is spreading in, in, the, in, in the Twitter sphere earlier in the course of the spread. We published a paper on this too. All of this stuff is, is published and uh, is available online. Yeah, I think you mentioned something in the TED Talk um, around the herd immunity where you said something around 960 people being um, immune is as good as 100%, but if 30% of them will not uh, 30% of them will lead, lead not to lead to her, herd immunity. Right. Um, can you explain that a little bit of how that works? Well, these things are nonlinear. So if you, if you, if you have enough vaccine to immunize 30% of the population, if you pick 30% of the population, and let's say you're dealing with a situation like measles, which is very infectious. If you, if you have enough measles vaccine to vaccinate 30% of the population and you immunize them at random, you should have the intuition that some of that vaccine will be wasted. For example, some people will have no social connections. They'll be hermits. They don't interact with anyone. Why would you give 
a vaccine for a contagious disease to someone with no social interactions. Mm. That's wasteful of vaccine. You should have the intuition that really we should be vaccinating people at the middle. The social butterflies should be vaccinated because they're the spreaders. If we vaccinate them, then we'll tamp down on the spread. So, but how do we find the spreaders? Well, you can use this friendship nomination technique, this friendship paradox to find the spreaders. You can pick 30% of the people at random in the population, have each of them nominate one of their friends and then give the vaccine to those people. And doing that is as effective as vaccinating 96% of the population. Mm. This was a result published in a paper from 20 years ago. Some other scientists uh, did the mathematics of this. And it's a beautiful result, and it illustrates some of the power of these uh, network methods that my laboratory is exploring. Is the takeaway then, if you have an idea, let's say you have a book, let's say you have uh, a product, and you want to spread it out to as many people as possible, is the idea there then you kind of take your target list of people that you think could be interested, and you figure out a way to have them nominate their friend or refer a friend? and get those friends to really, really use it. Yes, and target those friends. And what we did in India, in this paper that was published last week, is because your listeners are probably thinking, well, that's going to be a bit weird. How do I go to my friends and say, I have this product I want to give away, but I'm not going to give it to you. I want to give it to (laughs) someone you nominate. So because we are aware that that can be a problem, what we tested in this paper that was published last week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences is... uh, is what we had a, what we call a pair targeting algorithm. So, so one algorithm was 10% of the people picked at random. Another algorithm was 10% of the people picked at random, they each nominate a friend and we give it to that 10%. And the third algorithm is we pick 5% of the people at random and they each nominate a friend, so another 5%, and we treat both of them, both the original individuals and their nominees, again, for a total of 10% of the population. Therefore, we don't have to go to someone and say, we want to give something away, but not to you. We say, we want to give you something and one of your friends something. And, uh, and that worked excellently, the uh, mm. so-called pair targeting algorithm. And we think that'll be much more acceptable in global health settings. And as you're suggesting in other settings as well. Yeah. So like a referral program through word of mouth, where you give them an incentive to both you and the person that you're about to share it to is more effective than like a Facebook ad or a way, like a like a PR, like anything that doesn't really have any connections to you're saying. Well, no, I I I uh, I, I haven't proven that. Like I haven't proven what you just said. Like I don't know right. other kinds of advertising may work. I have no idea about that. I haven't studied Facebook ad campaigns. Uh, but what I am saying is is that exploiting network information to uh, can is is in fact, and we have proven this is very effective at enhancing adoption of products or dissemination of ideas. Now we work typically in a public health setting, most of our work, although we've also done some experiments here, I've been working with the former graduate student, Hiro Shirado at Carnegie Mellon. And, um, and Hiro and I have done a published a number of papers that look at, um, uh, for example, the diffusion of information online, and um, how to optimize that. Hmm. What is it about you think our human evolution or biology that that it's so wired to mimic what those around us that's are very, doing that's a very deep and interesting question and in fact that is a focus of my book blueprint that i mentioned at the beginning that came out in 2019 you're asking why do we even want to copy each other and i can explain this or i can summarize the work of many scientists i've only contributed a small amount to that The first thing you need to understand is is that there are different ways of learning about the world. So most animals can learn through contact with the environment. This is the classic kind of learning you we all studied in high school biology, you know, when an animal encounters an avert like a mouse encounters an electric shock, it learns not to go wherever the electric shock is. That's called independent learning, where you have contact with the environment and you learn something on your own. So you, for example, you put your hand in the fire and you learn that it burns. You've acquired some knowledge, but you've paid a price. You have a burnt hand. Some animals, a much smaller set of animals, can learn not just by independent learning, but socially. In other words, I watch you put your hand in the fire, and, uh, and, and I learn that fire burns, but my hand is not burnt. That's incredibly efficient, right? Social learning is hugely efficient. Or you, we go into the forest, and you eat red berries, and you die. You've learned a difficult lesson, but I don't eat the red berries. 
And, I, and so I gain all of the benefit, but I pay none of the price. So social learning is extremely efficient as a way of understanding the world. Uh, but some animals are, and very few now, take it even a step further and they teach each other things. It's not just passive, I observe each other. They, it's active, we transmit knowledge. We do it, certain other primate species do it, elephants do it, certain cetacean species do it. This is um, uh, affirmative teaching is very rare in the animal kingdom. Where, for example, I teach you to build a fire. And that capacity for teaching uh, is uh, ultimately at the root of all of our wealth uh, because it's what gives us the capacity for culture and for the uh, preservation and dissemination of knowledge across time and space, right? When you and I were born, we benefited from all the innovations of all prior humans, right? Thousands of years ago, humans domesticated animals. And when you and I were born, the sheep and the pigs and the cows had already been domesticated and all the, I, all the knowledge necessary to care for those animals had been invented and was given to us. Or when you and I were born, calculus had already been invented. We were taught calculus in high school. You know, we were taught so much mathematics in high school that if you had taken us back 400 years, we would have been the best mathematicians on the planet. And yet we just learned it in high school. And all the metal, you know, the technology, metallurgy, the roads had been built, all of the stuff we just were given this wealth when we were born. And it's that, it's that, it's that capacity for teaching and the transmission of knowledge that uh, lies at the roots of our capacity for culture and therefore our wealth and our safety. Same with vaccine development, by the way. The fact that you and I survived a COVID pandemic has more to do with the fact that doctors and scientists have labored for years and patients have signed up for experimental trials for centuries and contributed. All these people had contributed to the knowledge that was just given to us, you know, so we could survive the pandemic. So that's one background. But to answer your question most directly, why do we want what other people want? We have this predilection to copy. We're a copying species to copy each other. And a deeper reason for that is the following. If you're trying to figure out, you, Sean, are trying to figure out where is a safe place for me? Should I go to the forest? Should I go to the beach? Should I go to the mountain? Should I eat this food or should I eat that food? You want to know, is this deadly to me? Is this toxic? Or is this a safe food stuff for me to eat? If you are want to copy other people, to follow them and do what they are doing, they serve as a probe for the safety of the environment. Mm -hmm. They are like proxies for you. So learning to imitate others is a kind of heuristic, a kind of way, a, a kind of way to, in, in general, to facilitate your survival in the struggle for survival. So evolving the desire to simply imitate other people is like a very useful heuristic for evaluating the safety of an environment. Now, it's actually even more complicated than that because it's not always to your advantage. Sometimes it's to your advantage to, to innovate, right? Like if you willy-nilly follow someone to a barren environment because they don't know any better, you'll wind up in a place which has no food or other supplies for you. So maybe sometimes you should say, wait a minute, I don't want to follow the herd. I should do something different. And therefore, we've evolved these conflicting tendencies, both to imitate each other and occasionally to reject what everyone else is doing, which, by the way, we're seeing with COVID with the anti-vaxxers, right? There's some yeah. number of us who are saying, I refuse to believe this. You know, I, you know uh, I'm going to do the opposite of what the majority is doing. So, but to, so that's a long-winded way of saying that the fundamental reason we tend to copy each other, and this was also the subject of my 2009 book, Connected, The Surprising Power of Our Social Networks and How They Affect Our Lives, the most fundamental reason has to do with the fact that by copying others, we get a rapid and safer way of evaluating what a good choice is because someone else has done the hard work for us. Do you think there's some cultural differences as well? Like let's say America is more of an independent culture versus China or, or South Korea, which is where I was born, which is more of the collectivism culture where people are more immune to doing things as a collective, doing things as a group. You're not able to really stand out amongst or start your own business yes. versus America. Like, w w do you think there's some, some fundamental differences there in terms yes. of, yeah. Yeah, there's absolutely cultural variation in this, but that cultural variation is a, is a, I would say a thin veneer over more fundamental tendencies that all humans share. So uh, the metaphor I use for this in, in Blueprint, in my book Blueprint is, um, 
you know, we are, many of us are, many people are obsessed with cultural differences. And it's a little bit like sitting on a 10,000 foot plateau and saying this hill is 300 feet and that hill is 900 feet from where I'm standing. But if you take a step back, you realize that actually it's two mountains. One mountain is 10,300 feet. One mountain is 10,900 feet. Those mountains are actually not too dissimilar. So we tend to focus on these differences between, let's say, South Koreans and Americans. But actually, we're much more similar than we are different. And those similarities relate to the fundamental fact that we're all human and that we evolve these fundamental capacities. For example, the capacity for friendship. Koreans have friends and like having friends and feel good when they spend time with their friends. And so do Americans. This is a much more fundamental and important reality than little details about how Koreans greet their friends or the extent to which they do or don't copy what their friends want and so on compared to Americans, let's say. Um, and there are such differences. I'm not, I'm not ignoring or, or saying that cultural differences are unimportant. I'm just saying that the thing that interests me are, are the more fundamental commonalities between humans rather than these uh, differences from place to place. Yeah. And you also talk about how the people closest to you affects a lot of the things that you do, a lot of, you know, even your health, your, whether you're, I think, I think the specific focus that you had was around health and, and, and weight as well, which is kind of like you are the five people that you surround yourself with. Um, how far down the connection does that apply? Like if your friends of friends are also, let's say, overweight, do you, does that impact you or is it really our first connections so, so no, you, you, you can be affected, you can be affected by um, people you don't even know. So, and the simplest way of punching that point home is that, you know, right now you don't have coronavirus and neither do your friends, but your friends, friends, friends are infected and your friends, friends, friends who's infected will infect your friends, friend who will infect your friend who will infect you. So your risk of coronavirus depends on what's happening amongst these unnamed, unseen individuals three or four degrees away from you in the social network. Your friends, 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 for example. And it's pretty obvious when we're speaking about pathogens that that's the case. And it turns out in both experimental work that we have done and in observational work, and here you're alluding to a paper that on obesity that we published in 2007 on the social contagion of obesity. Uh, it turns out that, um, yes, there's evidence that your fate in life depends on what's happening in this social orbit uh, that you can't see, you know, that's beyond your social horizon. So you don't really know what's happening in your friends, 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 but things that they're doing are going to affect you. Products they're adopting, ideas they're espousing, germs they're harboring, uh, these things will, will spread through the network and come to affect you. And across a broad range of studies that we and others have done, looking at voting behavior, uh, looking at uh, criminal behavior, looking at um, ideas like uh, hashtags, uh, looking at uh, behaviors like obesity or smoking or emotions like happiness and loneliness. Across a broad range of phenomena, we find that you can affect people up to about three degrees removed from you and are affected by people up to about three degrees removed from you. Beyond that social horizon, What's happening there kind of tapers off and has a very weak effect, if any, on you. Yeah, I mean, especially with social media, I can imagine that the dissemination of information is so critical these days. I'm curious, like, because it's so important to know who you surround yourself with, it impacts maybe opportunities in terms of your career, your, your, your health, uh, the way you think, how big you think, all of these different things. People always talk about, um, and this would be kind of like one of the final questions, people always talk about the five people or the 50 people that you should hang out with, but you're saying that third degrees can also be impacted all the way down to the social circles. Should we also then judge who our friends' friends are in order to decide no, who think, we should have in our social uh, circle? No, no. Because no, that kind of makes sense, right, in that framework. Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think we should be too mercenary about this. I mean, one of the things that was very odd when we published that paper, James Fowler, who's at University of California at San Diego, my former collaborator, when James and I published his paper about obesity in 2007, there were, unexpectedly, there was a lot of interest in that paper and about obesity, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And um, there were headlines that we didn't expect this kind of popular attention to this work. And there was a really funny kind of difference. So for example, in the American headlines were, are you packing it on? Blame your fat friends. And uh, the British headlines were, 
Are your friends gaining weight? Perhaps you are to blame. You know, so the British take was very different than the American take on, you know, who, what the locus of responsibility was, which I thought was kind of funny. But, um, but and so we were asked, you know, we were seen as somehow having developed or promulgated results or discovered something that somehow would lead to fat shaming in our society. And therefore, I'm not sure what people wanted us to do, like suppress that research or not show our findings. I mean, that's not how science advances. We certainly yeah. weren't going to do that. But people were asking the question, does this does this knowledge mean that you should, you know, quote, ditch your fat friends? And then we looked at the data after the fact, and we found that any potential benefit in severing ties to overweight individuals was more than countermanded by the fact that now you'd lost your friends, you know, that you had fewer friends. So this contagion effect was at odds with the connection effect. Uh, and that there was no good reason to stop associating with people simply because of their body size. Now, it could be the case for other phenomena. You know, if your children are hanging out with uh, with bank robbers, it's probably not a good idea to hang out with those bank robbers. Uh, but if you're asking me, should we be somehow in a Machiavellian way evaluating the social connections of our social connections? I don't think that's the kind of world I want to live in. I mean, uh, maybe it's true. You know, maybe... Maybe our research could be used to support the fact that you should somehow vet, you know, the social circles of your friends. But um, yeah, that's not how I go about choosing choosing my friends. It seems like a lot of work, right? Just, just even think about think, that. Yeah, and there's some it's kind of unseemly. I'm not sure that's a sensible <laughs> approach to social life. Yeah, I just wanted to play the devil's advocate there. Um, well, Nicholas, thank you so much for for coming on. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up here. Where can people find out more about you, the work you're doing? Obviously, you've got your new book out, Apollo's Arrow. You've also have Connected, uh, Blueprint, all these great books that I recommend people check out. Uh, where should people direct to? Well, as I said, all the research is available liberally, along with videos and other educational materials on our lab website, humannaturelab.net. And, uh, and I um, have an active Twitter presence, so you can find me at N.A. Christakis uh, is my Twitter handle. Um, so I hope some of the resources we make publicly available are, and of course, the books that you mentioned. And I hope some of these resources are useful to people who are thinking about some of the topics we've been discussing. Cool. All right. Thanks so much for coming on, Nicholas. Sean, thank you so much for having me. Yeah.